Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. Are these your verdicts? So say you one, so say you all. Yes. 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 Members of the jury, I find that uh, the verdicts as read reflect the will of the jury and will be filed accordingly. I have to thank you on behalf of the people of the state of Minnesota for not only jury service, but heavy-duty jury service. Former Minnesota police officer Derek Chauvin found guilty on all charges related to the murder of George Floyd, one of the most highly watched trials here, as I can remember in recent history. As the verdict was read, not only just here in Atlanta, but everywhere, and also here in Atlanta, crowds gathered on Edgewood Avenue. All of us here, we protested all summer long for one person for us to see this day. And that was from WABE's Lisa Hagan, who was on the scene out there capturing the reaction and emotion to the verdict. On today's special program, we'll hear more local reaction and get insight as to what this moment means for future cases and the impact of last year's summer protests and uprisings calling for racial justice. But first, as we always do, we begin with our daily update on the coronavirus pandemic and, of course, here in Georgia. The nationwide campaign to get more Americans vaccinated continues this week now that all adults are eligible for the vaccine. And for the past two weeks, the U.S. vaccination rate has held steady at about three million shots per day. Now, that's according to the CDC. About 40 percent of Americans have received at least one vaccine dose. And at this time in Georgia, that number is lower. It's only about 32 percent. That comes out to about 5.4 million vaccines that have been administered here in Georgia so far. Now, the total number of cases confirmed since last year is 870,517. 17,250 Georgians have died due to this virus. And the total number of hospitalizations now, 60,652. And as the numbers increase in terms of folks who are getting vaccinated, well, MARTA now will be able to allow some of y'all to get back on the buses. So after suspending some bus routes due to the pandemic, MARTA will resume all routes this Saturday. And you may recall in April last year, MARTA had to stop running buses on 70 routes throughout Atlanta. The agency restarted only 12 routes since then. The transit agency note schedules will change on nearly all its routes, but now they are resuming. So you need to check MARTA's website to find out if your bus indeed will be back on the road. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. From last summer's protest to a moment that pretty much the entire nation anxiously waited or listened to yesterday. And yes, it was one of the most watched criminal trials in history. Certainly there have been others. But for one that involved an officer, it was historic as the judge read the verdicts. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. The news that former Minnesota police officer Derek Chauvin had been convicted for the murder of George Floyd. As you all know, there were many, many folks that took to the streets to either show their support. I didn't see many of the folks that were opposed to it, but that was taking place throughout the nation. Now, there are so many legal optics surrounding this case. Let's bring in WABE legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Paige Pate as we begin our special programming on this day. Paige, as always, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Great to be with you. Paige, let's start here. The jury took just over 10 hours to return these verdicts. How telling was that for a case like this? Well, I don't think it was really that unusual. I mean, I think a lot of folks who have not participated in in jury trials thought that 10 hours is fast, um, but really it's not. Uh, This was a straightforward case. There were a lot of witnesses. It took a long time to try, but the only really relevant question for the jury was, did they believe that uh, Chauvin was acting as a reasonable police officer? And clearly they answered that no. You know, Paige, I had a listener reach out to me and wanted to know why three separate charges for the same killing. And want to know, could you explain this? Let's first begin with the guilty of second degree unintentional murder. Sure. Second degree murder under Minnesota law is basically when an individual is committing a felony act. In this case, the act was assault and the person dies as a result of that felony. Mm -hmm. Now, there was no allegation that uh, Chauvin intended to kill George Floyd, and that's why he wasn't charged with first degree murder. But second degree murder is a killing when the person's involved in an underlying felony. And then the third degree murder here. Third-degree murder does not require an underlying felony. It's basically um, when the individual, the defendant, in this case, Officer Chauvin, commits an act with a depraved heart, just really could not care less about his actions and whether or not that creates a danger uh, to another individual. And then, of course, a death results of that action, and that's third-degree murder under Minnesota law. And then, Paige, the second-degree manslaughter charge here. Yeah, that's clearly the um, least serious of all three charges. 
that is an offense when someone commits a culpable negligent act, basically a mistake, but a mistake that they should have avoided and somebody dies as a result. So that's a manslaughter charge versus a murder charge, and it carries a much lesser penalty under Minnesota law. And so, Paige, a listener wants, wanted to know why three separate charges then for the same killing? And they went on to say, was this a way for the prosecution to be guaranteed a guilty verdict somewhere in there, if not all three, but at least one or two? Yes, um, basically, that's exactly what happened. The prosecutor wanted to give the jury an option. So, look, if you don't think we've proven the most serious crime here, second degree murder, uh, maybe you don't think he was committing an assault at the time George Floyd died. Well, how about third degree murder? And if not third degree murder, how about second degree manslaughter? You may remember that the third degree murder charge was initially dismissed from the case by the judge, but then reinstated before trial. So prosecutors love that. Um, That way, even if a jury is kind of split on what should happen in the case, Mm -hmm. three different charges give them the opportunity to compromise. In this case, that wasn't necessary because the jury unanimously believed he was guilty on all three charges. Paige, this trial lasting three weeks, witnesses who were there on May 25th, the 911 dispatcher, fellow officers, a police chief, medical experts, trauma experts, and of course the nine-minute-plus cell phone video, all this evidence that was presented here. Were you surprised that Chauvin did not take the stand when the defense had its turn? Um, You know, that's a great question. As a defense lawyer, it's probably the most difficult call we make. How do we advise our client about whether or not to take the stand? Uh, Some cases it's obvious when um, there there are two versions of the event, no video involved, and and you've got to have your client say, well, this is what happened. Uh, In this case, there was a video, uh, a video video basically of the entire uh, murder of George Floyd. And so if you put the officer up on the stand, that's going to give the prosecution the opportunity to walk through this video step by step with the officer, let the jury see it again. And we had plenty of evidence in that trial that the officer was violating policies. So you walk the officer through those policies and he would have to admit that he violated them or look ridiculous for denying it. So I understand the reason why he didn't take the stand here. I heard one legal analyst state that this could have been an opportunity for Chauvin to show, as they put it, quote, his human side. But given what you've just said, um, and as a criminal defense attorney, would you have advised him then not to? I mean, I I don't know, Chauvin. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. he comes across really well. Um, That's not what we saw on the video. Uh, But if he was overly persuasive and, and just appeared to be a great officer, Uh, I still would probably not have suggested he testify here, just given the strength of the video. And if you've got somebody on that jury who's going to side with a police officer and basically think they, you know, can never do any harm, that's going to happen whether you put him up on the stand or not. So I just don't think he would have gotten the benefit from any juror by testifying in this case. If you're just joining us, this is a special edition of Closer Look. Of course, I'm Rose Scott. Today's program is reaction, legal and social reaction, to the guilty verdicts on all three charges of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. I'm joined right now by WABE legal analyst and also criminal defense attorney Paige Pate. Paige, before we get to possible sentencing here, what were the takeaways for you throughout these three weeks of, of testimony here? 
I think the most important thing, Rose, is that without the videos, there probably would have been a different result. And, and that's disturbing uh, to a certain extent, uh, but we've seen it play out many, many times before. Because a prosecutor, you know, when they're faced with an officer-involved shooting, they're going to listen to what the officer says. They're going to listen to whatever witnesses may have been present. And then they're going to listen to the other officers who were present. And in this case, there were several officers who are now charged with crimes who were backing um, Chauvin. And so I don't know that this case would have ever been brought, much less successfully prosecuted, if there had not been videotape. And that's something hopefully we can, you know, build on. Um, and maybe it's a, a great thing that we do have people with cell phones walking around and are able to capture this, but it's not going to happen every time. And mm -hmm. that's concerning. And we're, in a moment, we're going to talk about video footage, whether it's from body cam or, or a civilian. We'll get to that in just a moment because there's still two other high profile cases in here in Georgia that we need to talk about. But let's look at the possible sentencing for Derek Chauvin. Break this down for our audience in terms of you're not the judge, but what the judge will consider here. Sure. Um, and, and I think a lot of analysis we've heard in the media has not been entirely accurate about this. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> not on WABE. Let me make that clear. WABE is entirely accurate, always accurate. <laughs> Um, but and it's funny, Rose. I mean, some of the commentators we see on TV talking about this case and I the know. legalities. I don't know that they've ever tried a murder case, but we'll get past that. And have nobody's um, law degree on their wall anywhere. But that's just me. There you go. <laughs> um, so in a case like this where the jury convicted him on all counts, I don't think he's going to get sentenced on all counts because it's only one crime. It's only one death. So those lesser offenses will merge into the more serious offense, which is the second degree murder charge. Under the sentencing guidelines in Minnesota, he's looking at a sentence of about 12 and a half years because he has no prior record. Mm -hmm. Now, the judge doesn't have to give him that 12 and a half years. There's a maximum of 40 years. And I do believe the prosecutors have um, indicated they intend to ask for an above guideline sentence. So I would expect the sentence would be in excess of 12 years and somewhere under 40. Well, Paige, let's shift for a moment because I want to talk about the legal precedent here. It's very rare that a police officer is even charged. We know that. But what is the significance of this case and might this change? I mean, because, look, there are a lot of pending uh, trials. We're going to get to one here in Atlanta with Rayshard Brooks. But, you know, even to get to that, there was always a challenge. Will an officer even be charged? Because it was always maybe revealed that the officer or officers reacted with you with you know reasonable force. Um, but given this case, does any of this change at all? You think? Well, I'll tell you. I think the most important thing, Rose, is that there was a conviction. Because had there not been a conviction. I think any prosecutor would been would have been reluctant going forward against an officer if you got video, you've got community outrage, you had all the factors present in this case, and they couldn't get a conviction. Uh, that would have been very problematic. But there was a conviction, so I think prosecutors will now say, "Well, if we have the perfect case, then we can bring it because juries will convict officers if they're confronted with evidence that is overwhelming." The question is, you know, will that change the analysis in most of the other cases which don't have this overwhelming, compelling video evidence of what happened? Well, you just said 
if it's a perfect case for the prosecution. And if you don't have this video or any type of surveillance, maybe you just have the testimony of the witnesses. If you don't have this perfect case, then we're kind of back to where, well, and we can talk about this too. Folks say we shouldn't even get here, but you're back to that same old question. Will the officer or officers even be charged if you don't have that perfect evidence? That's right. I mean, think about this case without the videos. First of all, there would have been much less community reaction, which would have, you know, which put the attention on the case. And you would have basically had what, four or five police officers all line up behind Chauvin and say, yeah, he had his knee on his neck, but he was resisting. He was trying to get away. And you would have a few bystanders on the other side saying that's not what happened at all. Who's the prosecutor likely to believe in that situation? Mm. But we had video in this case, and that's what made the difference. Paige, here in Georgia, there are two high-profile cases, one involving an Atlanta police officer in the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks and also the Ahmaud Arbery case. Now, what's similar here, of course, is video footage. Obviously, we have the, the body camera footage with the Atlanta police officer and then here with Ahmaud Arbery cell phone video footage. What do you know? Let's start with Ahmaud Arbery because you've been down in the Brunswick area. Where do we know when this trial could possibly get underway here? Because those men have been charged. They have been charged. They're currently uh, in the Glenn County Jail waiting on trial. Um, You know, trials are just beginning to start in Glenn County uh, after the pandemic. It's been difficult to put a jury together uh, I don't think state court is set up <clears throat> set up here the same way it was in Minnesota with all of the precautions. But I expect there are going to be some juries maybe next month. But that case, probably not going to see trial until late summer or early fall. Based on this video, this cell phone video footage that we have here in this case, uh, many folks will say, OK, that's all you need. What do you through your legal lens, what could possibly the defense have to counter that? Ahmaud Arbery was jogging. Yeah. Well, I think the defense is going to rely heavily on Georgia's outdated citizen's arrest law. And the defense theory has to be this individual was breaking into a house at least as far as we understood it. And we were going to apprehend him and wait for the cops to arrive. Now, I don't think the facts are going to bear that out, but Mm -hmm. given the video evidence, that's the only defense you really have. And of course, now Georgia law is going to change, but even with a change now, it's not going to affect the ability to use that defense for what happened back then. So I I expect you're going to hear a lot about citizens arrest in Georgia when that case goes to trial. A GBI officer in one of the hearings testified that there was a racial slur that was uttered by one of the men as Ahmaud Arbery lay on the ground dying. Might that also be a factor here, that this was racially motivated? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, evidence of intent to kill is always relevant in a murder case, and the defense has tried hard to keep that evidence out, but I think the judge is going to let it in when it goes to trial. And you don't just have the statement that was made on the scene. You have all this social media evidence of potential, you know, racial uh, bias and and prejudicial comments, uh, not going to be easy for the defense to walk away from that if it's introduced to trial in a convincing way. 
And Paige, I want to end talking about the Atlanta police officer, Garrett Roth here, involved in a shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. Now, here's what's interesting, because now Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has been a little bit quiet lately in terms of what's going to happen with this case. Obviously, this case was happened when another district attorney, Paul Howard, was leading the department. Could this, is it possible that the charges could be dropped and another investigation has to happen under Fonnie Willis's watch and then these officers be tried again? Or how do you see this possibly playing out? Because it's been kind of quiet of late. Well, that's because of the procedural difficulties in the case. And it's really unfortunate. I mean, when Ms. Willis said, I think I have a conflict here, I don't want to prosecute the case because of what my predecessor did while he was in office, the attorney general should have reassigned the case to another prosecutor. Um, Now you've got that baggage with the Fulton County DA's office handling a case that they don't believe they can properly handle. And that's going to, you know, make a, a, a case that's very important to the community more difficult to prosecute. And I think that's really a bad um, outcome for Georgia. And I think the attorney general should have assigned it to someone else. And that's what's taking so much time. Now. I mean, what do you do with a case that you say you can't prosecute? Well, and it's a tough call. Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr says sending it back to Fulton. Some say that's political. Uh, that yeah. Maybe that's at the urging of the governor. I don't know that. That's what we've heard. But sure. if this if indeed Fonnie Willis says we can't prosecute this at some point, these charges have to be dropped against Officer Roth and the other gentleman or what happens? Well, here? she can. She can. Um, you know, if she's forced to handle the case, I, you know, Ms. Willis is, is diligent. She's ethical. I think she'll probably reopen the investigation and try to take a fresh look at it and consider all of the different angles and whether Paul Howard jumped too quickly to get the media attention to help his reelection campaign, or whether it's a viable case to prosecute. You know, you do have video evidence in that case, but it is not as clear cut as George Floyd, not not by any stretch of the imagination. So I think at the end of the day, somebody needs to prosecute the case and let a jury decide just like they did with Derek Chauvin. Um, But we'll see. Do you think former District Attorney Paul Howard jumped too soon and this was part of his, through your lens, part of some way to probably reassure his reelection? Do you think he jumped too soon? You know, I think... And that's a great question, Rose, but I think I commented at the time, and and I still believe this, I think the case should be prosecuted. In fact, I just said that. I think the case (laughs) should be prosecuted. But did he overstate things? I think so. Um, Did he, you know, rush to conclusions without thoroughly investigating what happened? And I think so. Did he try to use it for political advantage instead of, you know, reasons related to justice? Yes. So it was mishandled, but I still think it's a viable case. WABE legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Paige Pate is always good information. Paige, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. As always, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Immediately following George Floyd's death last May 25th, protests begin, not just in Minnesota, but across the nation, here in Atlanta, and all throughout the world. What do you want? Justice! When do you want it? Now! What do you want? Justice! When do you want it? Take your knee off our necks! Take your knee off our necks! 
Take your knee off our necks! Take your knee off our necks! We're now in our eighth night of protests in this country. There are protests at this hour in New York City. It was so unsettling in Manhattan last night, hearing the helicopters, the police choppers overhead, and the sirens. Across the country, the calls for justice are growing more intense. In Atlanta, where protesters filled the streets, smoke billowed into the sky as a police car went up in flames. There is something better on the other side of this. There's something better on the other side of this for us, and there's something better on the other side of this for our children's children. For decades, longer than I've been alive, we've seen people unjustly killed, unjustly jailed or oppressed, and it's finally come to a head. So the conversations that I had with my son late last night while we were watching this, and he was like, Dad, why are they destroying my city? And I paused for a moment, and I said, son, people are angry, people are hurt, and they are acting out, but that's not the way to do it. And following that destructive night on Friday, May 29th, uh, Closer Look dedicated a week-long series to analyzing the ongoing protests, uprisings as some call them, and discussing topics including 21st century protesting, moral leadership, voting, and race reconciliation. And joining me as they did last summer, I call them Closer Look's Big Three, Professor Nsinga Burton, co-director of film and media management at Emory University, and also an award-winning journalist and editor-in-chief of the Burton Wire. Also, Professor Ilya Davis, y'all know him, Director of New Students and Transition Programs and Professor of Philosophy at the Morehouse College. And joining us a little bit later is Maurice Hobson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies and Historian. He's also Vice Chair of the Scholarship and Creative Board for Georgia State's newly created Center for Studies on Africa and its Diaspora. So he'll join us in just a second. Professors, thank you for taking the time as always. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. You know, nearly a year later, while a lot has happened, uh, let's start here with you, Professor Burton. Since the verdict, you know, there have been a lot of analysis, but what is your takeaway through your lens and all of this from the protests to yesterday? I mean, you know, it's a bittersweet, Rose. Um, you know, Black folks have dealt with so much uh, violence against us um, at the hands of rogue police officers, not all police officers, rogue police officers. And I think that we have just gotten used to being brokenhearted and not thinking that there is justice for us in an unjust country uh, with a justice system that is quite flawed and often uh, with odds stacked against us. And so we have seen other cases that were on video. We've ha have seen other cases where it was clear that someone um, was killed uh, who was unarmed and, uh, and outmanned, you know, in the case of an Eric Garner, um, or someone killed in their sleep like a Breonna Taylor and a Tatiana Jefferson, um, you know, who was in her home uh, with her nephew playing video games. Mm -hmm. So we've seen this before and we've seen either those cases not get prosecuted or uh, if they are prosecuted, the police officers get off. I mean, Oscar Grant, you know, who was uh, killed while he was lying on his stomach um, at a BART station um, when the police officer, uh, Mahurl, I think is how you pronounce his last name, mm -hmm. uh, you know, accidentally uh, shot him instead of used his taser. We have a case like that now happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and that officer didn't serve, you know, hardly any time for that, even though he was convicted. So in ca the case of George Floyd, I like, I think that everyone, all of the momentum around him, all the protests, I do think it was a game changer in certain ways, right? So you have uh, 
groups outside of African Americans, um, and and we've also always had multiracial coalitions, but Mm -hmm. in terms of large, large numbers of people outside of those uh, particular groups coming together to seek justice and to call for justice. And I think this case was so egregious um, that, you know, the guilty verdicts had to happen. And so, yeah, we are happy about it. Um, We're still on pins and needles about the sentencing. Um, And I, I I just think it's difficult for Black people to celebrate any perceived victories Um, when we are faced with the level of violence um, that we face uh, in society in America, uh, particularly as it relates to the criminal justice system. All right. Professor Davis, your takeaway from all of this from last summer to yesterday? Well, it still seems to be something of an anomaly. And I think that the type of movement, social movements toward justice, it has somehow be beyond the outline. This decision seems more of an outlier. I think people are apathetic and sometimes a little little numb because there hasn't been any consistent justice Mm -hmm. that follows these types of egregious acts. And what is happening now is people are asking others to celebrate. Now, I understand the, the, the sort of tendency to want to celebrate this, but I still believe that it's something of a hydra, a social hydra, where every time you figure out things might get better, Another problem arises, and we saw that on the day of as soon as you call the changes, we're gonna uh, t- we're gonna have to Professor Davis. We're gonna connect with you in just a moment because you're dropping out. I want to bring in now Professor Maurice Hobson. And the question that I asked your two fellow professors were, you know, your takeaway from the protest last summer to that moment yesterday that we heard in the Minnesota courtroom. Well, you know, yesterday was was interesting. Um, when the verdict was read, I was sitting at an administrator's meeting at Georgia State, and we paused the meeting to watch, you know, what the verdict would be. And my hand, I, I could see myself on the Zoom screen, and my hands were over my face. And um, at that same time, uh, my wife was talking about taking something to a friend in Stone Mountain, and I said, you got to stay at home. We got to figure out what's going on first. Um of course, it was egregious, and I mean, and we witnessed it, and the world really held, you know, the justice system. Um, it really had it in a place to where it could not deny that. But we've seen that before. I mean, um, most recently, I was just teaching the Rodney King uh, incident, mm-hmm. and where we had that on tape, and we witnessed that, and four police officers got off. And my students who that is outside of their lifetime were just kind of like, what do you, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Like we, we saw that. And I was like, well, but the thing with this is that as, as, as I believe that justice was served, we cannot celebrate in a country that just did the bare minimum on what it was supposed to do and then think that we're moving in the right direction. And as the verdict was read, then, the young sister, Makia Bryant, was shot in Columbus, Ohio. We have Adam Toledo, uh, who was shot by the police in um, Chicago. Chicago. We have uh, Dante Wright, who was shot in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And so this thing still continues, and we still have to go through this over and over again. Uh, but I do believe that justice was served yesterday. You know, so much has been made about those protests, and some feel that that really was you know, a catalyst for all this. Now, you all remember last year, and I spent the Saturday afternoon following that Friday night of of protests and uprisings. 
Um, and I want to recall a conversation you all that I had with Eva. So let me ask you this. And I see on your shirt, I can't breathe. Where do we go from here? Where does Atlanta go from here? I say burn it down. If it was one of my three boys, I would not sit on TV and I would not ask for peace to be held. No, burn it down. They need to hear us and hear us now. They didn't want us to kneel peacefully. You know, they don't want us to come out here and protest peacefully. They don't want us to stand for us peacefully. You know, but it, it, it got to start somewhere and they got to hear us and we got to make it be heard. What's your response to someone that says, oh, burn it down, what good will that do? Burning it down would do a lot. They would start, their eyes will open. If we affect the white man's money, where it means something to them, you know what I'm saying? I believe that they will wake up, they will start realizing. Is there any other solution though, besides, Eva, besides burning it down and, and people possibly losing their lives? Is there any other solution? Start convicting these white men for killing us. The men that hide behind the badges, they're killers, they're murderers, they're human just like we are. They need to stand to the same laws that we have to stand by. I am a black mother of three black boys. Burn the city down. I'm, I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm tired. Burn it down. I remember all of you saying you could understand Eva's feelings, but the impact of the protests or uprisings, whatever you want to call them, that that had leading up to not only the charges, but then also eventually a conviction here against Derek Chauvin, played a crucial role in all of this. Professor Hobson, I'll start with you. I'll let you take the lead on that. I absolutely think that it did play a, uh, a significant a significant role in this. I mean, you know, I, I, I think about that conversation that you had with Eva every day. And I and I remember my response was, I think about Professor Ilya Davis, who was from Atlanta, and this is where he's from. And mm -hmm. Eva was from either Cincinnati or somewhere like that. She was from somewhere outside mm -hmm. and, you know, was saying, like, burn it down. And it's like you, you, you're burning down Ilya Davis's hometown. You're burning down the hometown of CeeLo Goody or, you know, who, whoever. Yeah. And, and I was just kind of like, you know, we, we got to be careful about what it is that we're doing. But I will say this, that there is a burning down or the dismantling of the racism and the institutional aspects of how this works. And so I think that protest, I think that when the world protested, and this is something that I always want us to consider, one of the things that really does move things in the United States, with the exception of the previous president, is how the United States looks to the rest of the world. It's a PR image. And when you go out here, you say democracy is the greatest thing in the world and look at America, and then China or Russia or, or you know anyone else says, but look at how you're killing black men and women in the streets, then that makes an American president do something. And I think that our justice system really got a shot in the arm to look at itself and to examine itself. Mm -hmm. Professor Davis, I want to bring you back to the conversation because Eva was talking about burning down your city, as <laughs> Professor Hobson <laughs> talked about. But you all, again, you all understood where, as you all called her, Sister Eva was coming from. Yes, yes. I mean, again, and I, and I feel comfortable saying this, is that there's a tendency not to be able to go through some catharsis where violence is not always should not always be the alternative. And so what we're faced with is the publicity of our suffering now becomes the corresponding motivation for justice. And it can't be that. 
right? It can't be the sort of obscene observation of my suffering that promotes your justice. And it has to come differently. It has to come by virtue of my existence as a human being with all the rights and dignity and respect that goes along with that. And so for me, the problem is people don't see themselves as valued. And when you don't see yourself as valued, you want to lash out, not lashing out specifically, but lashing out in a way that you want someone to recognize the fact that you do exist and your life matters. And that is the problem that we're facing. We don't need to call roll. Every time I hear a roll call, it upsets me because I'm thinking, if these are the ones that have been captured, how many of those nameless individuals have suffered under an empire that fails to recognize the suffering of black people if it's not recorded? That's a problem. And so whatever happened the other day, I appreciate it, but that becomes an anomaly, outlier, whatever you want to call it, but it does not get to the seat of the problem, and that is the dignity and respect and care that is to be afforded black people, specifically right now, has to be warranted by virtue of existence, not because of recording. Hmm. Professor Burton, when we talked last time, and I, and I said this quote, and, and because I've heard it growing up all my life, a child that is not embraced by the village will burn it down to fill its warmth. And when you hear Eva back then, that was just last summer, talk about where she was at as a mother, as a black mother of three boys. Um, your thoughts on the protests and, and uprisings and how leading up to yesterday's historic moment. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, most, let's, let's be honest, most of the protests are not violent and they are not burning down cities. If you look at protests in other countries, you know, other European nations even, right, in Paris, for, for instance, or um, in countries in Brazil, uh, in cities, major cities in Brazil, um, you know, you see some, you know, very, um, uh, you see what I would call real protest, right? A nation that revolts against the government in a way that they can feel it, we can see it, and they have to do something about it because it is a threat to their infrastructure, right? We don't have those kind of protests in the US. We don't, and we need to stop pretending that protest, which is a First Amendment right, is something that is bad. It is not something that is bad. It is as American as apple pie. So, you know, your, your saying is correct, right? If you, if you don't nurture um, people, if you don't make them visible, you know, that's what Dr. Hobson was saying. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Ilya is talking about that obscene. Why does it have to be so obscene? Um, in the same way that we're murdered, in terms of the same way that we have to protest in order to be heard, um, is outrageous. You know, you can't uh, protest peacefully at, at your silence, like a, a Kaepernick, right? You protest um, in a very different way, peacefully in a march, and you're, um, um, you know, uh, you have violence uh, against you by the police, like the young people at Morehouse and Spelman, the young students at Morehouse and Spelman, right? Um, you're trying to adhere to the rules. Like you can't just keep, you know, uh, E. Franklin Frazier talked about this in uh, the Black Bourgeoisie. Like the more you learn the rules, the more white America changes them, right? Mm -hmm. Most Def talks about this in his work, right? We keep learning the rules of the game, then you keep changing the game, right? So it's like, you can't keep moving the boundaries, right? You can't keep changing the rules because black people become more and more empowered or informed and are willing to exercise their rights um, in a way that is difficult for you, but is very much a part of who we are historically and also um, uh, very much a part of the American way of being. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that the protests did a great job in terms of exposing uh, what was happening. I think the multiracial nature of the protests in such large numbers 
also helped because it wasn't just black folks who were out here saying stop doing this to us but there were also white folks and lgbtq populations some of whom are black um mm -hmm. out here you know on mass there were coalitions that were working towards this goal and so i think that's what's creating the shift it's not that black people haven't been doing this work for centuries mm -hmm. you know it's not just you know king's civil rights movement there's a civil rights movement before that right um but we've been doing this work in this country since we got here um, and so now I think there's a coalition um, in a way that is really meaningful and long-term, right? Um, that is shifting the narrative. But I don't think it's because America has woken up, ha you know, has awakened to a greater consciousness. And, you know, we always have to force this country to do the right thing, especially as it relates to black people. Let's talk about this moment, this movement for the folks that you all educate every day and how this connects to the civil rights movement. And then the, what we call 21st century civil rights. And uh, Professor Burton, I'll stay with you because is there, is we always talk about, are there lessons that today's young leaders can learn from the civil rights movement? But what lessons have we learned from what these, some of these young folks did from last summer to now? I, I want to get, I want to give them some shine before they send me yeah, email. Yeah. Media matters. I mean, that young sister, Darnella Frazier, I mean, somebody give her an Academy Award, damn it. <laughs> uh, Africa, I'm interviewing them at my three o'clock show. Give them an award. Give the sister an award. These young people who are risking their lives and their liberty, the young brother who uh, taped Eric Garner's um, murder execution um, is what I call it. Um, I don't know the legal term, but that's what it looked like to me. Uh, and he, he's caught hell since that. You know, mm -hmm. he's been in jail. He's had all kinds of problems um, behind taping that video. But that media matters. You know, it is a way to use it in a way that is purposeful, that can create uh, in, the, in service to social justice, creating social change. Uh, and being kind of like what the press is supposed to be, mm -hmm. but because we become more and more corporatized, right? Um, you know, that, 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 that next leg, you know, the, the, the gatekeeper, mm -hmm. we keep watch over those other three executive forms of government, right? Um, you know, I think that young people need to realize that the people who were doing the work in the previous civil rights movements were young people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. So you don't have to look to your parents to do it. You don't have to look to your grandparents to do it. They were doing it at 15, 14, 13. Mm -hmm. um, and you're 21. So why aren't you doing it? Um, so I think we can learn that social media uh, has value. Learning media, media literacy is important and should be taught um, from early ages uh, that you can create social change through media um, and that there can be careers made creating this social change through the form of media, whether it's a documentary, whether it's capturing Rodney King, capturing um, footage of, of, of George Floyd. Um, but I think that we, we definitely got to give some shine to these young folks out here literally risking their lives to do the jobs that people are paid to do and aren't doing. Mm. You can talk to Elizabeth O'Malami, daughter of Hosea Williams, who's out there when she was 12, 13. I think she said she was 14 when she was first arrested. Professor Hobson, the young folks here, they, the role they play in all this. Listen, let me, I, you know, I'm so proud of our young people. I, uh, and, you know, right now I'm teaching them and they're kind of coming off of the, the, the high of last summer was this and last summer was that, but it gave them a, a different kind of understanding. You know, so much has happened since we had that conversation before, mm -hmm. but, um, you, you know, you had the passing of John Lewis, uh, you had the passing of C.T. Vivian, uh, and, 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 and both of these gentlemen really, you know, held uh, young people at their core. And the cool thing about it is now they're able to see how a John Lewis with C.T. Vivian or Joseph Lowry, you know, in all of his work. Now they're able to see that, you know, 
this is what was going on. And particularly here in Atlanta with the Atlanta student movement, you know, they're understanding that this is a part of a longstanding tradition. But I also want to do this for them is I want to close the loop for them mm -hmm. because when they saw how foolish things had gotten and they got out there on the front lines during the, the in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, mm -hmm. what that did is that motivated many of them to say, you know what, I got to change this. And they became voters. And we see the largest influx of voters from 18 to 29 because they wanted to vote out racist policies. It shows that DAs matters, matter and all kinds of different things. So I want to close the loop. And we have to work our, our use our own magic as scholars to be able to provide the reports and understanding to let these young people see the kind of influence that they actually had. And when they see that, they'll do even more. And Professor Davis, every young man I talk to at Morehouse always says, you got to take Professor Davis' class. What's your takeaway with these young folks that you were over there educating? I am so happy we have them. I look at them as kindling in a good Southern um, sense that they always get us older people reignited. And I think they did a wonderful job of that because sometimes we become a little complacent. And I think one of the greatest things was they motivated us to reinvest in ideals that we've been teaching them from day one. And so they were allowed to make real and manifest all of the ideals we talk about when we talk about the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s, that they saw it come alive and they took, it, took that on themselves to recreate and to be imaginative because they're doing things that we never did do. And I think that the motivation behind them is something to be honored and respected and that we can't let them down by withdrawing our support for them. So we have to maintain the highest level of respect for their ideal and how they wish to commit and, and engage. And fundamentally, we thank God that they're here to keep us keep us hot like we should be. And as we wrap up, Professor Davis, I'll stay with you asking the question, what next doesn't seem like a good question to ask. But I'll ask what now and because of what happened with the with the verdict and some will say well first of all let's let's hopefully we don't have to have all these trials that continue because we don't want the incidents to occur but look let's be clear we have some trials that are still going to be upcoming here so what is your your hope then that what this verdict will do and everything leading up to it for some of these other trials that have yet to even get underway wow that's a very complex you know one thing i'm very interested in and i talk to my students about this we need to be very attentive to the psychological trauma that folks are going through. Many people are broaching these conversations without the adequate care that's associated. So whatever the outcomes of these next few trials, we need to be quite sharply attuned to how do you respond to that level of trauma that one must visit vicariously and then with the possibility of it transpiring in their lives. So I think we're going to have to be very, very, very careful of how we talk about and how we walk in the world, mm -hmm. knowing that we're constantly viewed as predators. So these young people are going to have to say to themselves, they got to take a little bit at a time instead of so much mm -hmm. because they're overwhelmed. My students right now, some of them don't even want to come to class because they don't feel as if there's anything to be said. And I respect the silence of suffering as well. Mm -hmm. Professor Burton, I'll give you 30 seconds to answer as well. What is next? I think, um, you know, we can't, we, we can't celebrate. We have to keep working. I mean, just in this conversation, there's another uh, story about a, a killing of an unarmed person by a police officer serving a search warrant. Um, so, you know, what's next is more of the same, unfortunately. Um, you know, these cases are not going to go away and they do have to be prosecuted. 
Um, so I think that people just have to get ready and it is exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. Ilya is kind of correct when he talks about that. Um, and it is, it's hard, you know, it's hard work. It's not easy work, but it has to be done if we're going to move our society forward and make sure that being black in America, that we can have some joy sometimes. And it's not based on justice all of the time uh, or the pursuit of um, happiness and joy. That should be ours too, as Americans. Mm. Professor Maurice Hobson, I'll give you the last word on all this. Where do we go from here? Well, you know, um, I just hope that we can stay politically engaged and that we're able to witness an opportunity where we can see uh, police reform. I am not anti-police, um, but I'd like to see police reform. And I'd also like to see uh, an, a movement that will professionalize police, give them the kind of services uh, that or different training mm -hmm. uh, so that they can be more humane uh, and also, you know, really do some old school policing in terms of put police officers from communities to police their own communities where there is rapport. Mm -hmm. So um, that is what I hope. But we have to keep the fire lit and we have to keep pushing. Maurice Hobson, associate professor of Africana studies and a historian, Professor Ilya Davis, director of new students and transition programs and a professor of philosophy at the Morehouse College, also Professor Nsinga Burton, co-director of film and media management at Emory University, editor-in-chief of the Burton Wire. As always, I call y'all the big three. Y'all can decide who's Pippin, who's MJ, and who's Rodman. <laughs> I appreciate y'all. You Rodman, Professor Hobson. All right, yeah, you can rock that multicolored fro, bro. <laughs> I'll take Pippin. I'll take Pippin. I'll take Pippin. You, <laughs> you don't play no defense. <laughs> Professor Davis, I guess you MJ. <laughs> I'm the mean I'm the mean one then. All I'm right. the mean one. <laughs> Thank you all for taking the time. Right. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Good conversation. Be safe. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, special Closer Look produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson, our engineer for today. Kevin Rinker, as always, you can find the entire program online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7, as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like, because we should be there. We better be. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.